<laughs> Good morning, everyone. My name is Alan. I am the student's pastor here at Reach. And since I am the one preaching, not doing the announcements, the announcement guy did forget one announcement. Uh, we're having our third annual youth pool party tonight, 5.30 uh, to 8.30. Uh, so thank you for joining us this morning. I do hope that this day finds you all well. Today, uh, we are going to be talking about the sanctification process of the believer and the many struggles that it represents. And, and let me start off with, with this. A paradox can be defined as two seemingly contradictory statements where both happen to be true. And nowhere does that seem to be so true or uh, cause so much confusion than with statements in the Bible. In his commentary on Philippians, John MacArthur writes these very interesting words. From the earliest days of the church, the relationship between the power of God and the responsibility of the believers has been debated. Is the Christian life a matter of passive trust or of active obedience? Is it all God's doing, all the believers doing, or a combination of both? The same question arises, he writes, about salvation itself. Is it all God's doing? Or is there a requirement on men's part in response to the command to believe the gospel? Scripture emphasizes both. It's clear that salvation involves both, both God's sovereignty and human response. In John 6:44, Jesus declared, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But then in Acts 16:31, we have the command, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Clearly, salvation is the initiation of God's, but it always reveals itself in the faith and the confession of men. Salvation is not by human works, yet it is always through personal faith. He goes on to point out other doctrines that involve seeming paradoxes, such as that Jesus Christ is fully God, yet fully man. That scripture was written by human authors, yet it claims to be inspired by the word of God. That the gospel is offered to the whole world, but applied only to the elect. That God eternally secures the believer's salvation, yet the believer is commanded to persevere. Then he makes this incredibly important observation. Christians who try to reconcile every doctrine in a humanly rational way are inevitably drawn to extremes. And... You know, within my own beliefs, reading up on others' beliefs and speaking with other people, I found that to be very true. It might be prophecy, or election, or free will, or evangelistic methods, or the gifts of the Spirit. One side of the coin becomes so much a person's passion that imbalance is the net result. And we sometimes tend to emphasize one aspect of God's word at the expense of another. And as challenging as all these issues are to all of us, 
One that is at the, tube of the, at the top of the food chain is the issue of sanctification. Growing in your faith and walk with Christ. I mean, is it up to God to make you grow in your walk and in your faith? Or is it up to you? Which is it? And the answer is both. Right? In a nutshell, we can understand sanctification or spiritual growth this way. The growth of a, of a believer requires our diligent effort, and it will never happen without it. But your, your diligent effort is enabled by the power of God, it can, and it can never happen with that, without that either. This is exactly the paradox presented in the, um, by the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Philippians. As he begins to take on the attitude and actions of Christ's humility and apply them to the Christian and the church. So let's quickly overview the issue of Paul raises in Philippians 2.12. And, and, I, and yeah, uh, if we have the, the Philippians 2.12, yeah. And notice the last uh, part of the verse. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse, and then if we can switch to verse 13 real quick. For it is God who is at work in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation and God is at work in you. How's that for a paradox? So the question remains, is your Christian walk in growth and service up to you or up to God? And the answer is yes. I don't know. I think I'm in over my head on this one. I don't know. I don't know. So here's the funny thing. Paul is actually going to make no attempt to reconcile these two seemingly paradoxical statements in the Philippians chapter. But what he will do is move from the example of Christ's humility and will begin to apply it to our own lives and hearts. It will require every ounce of vigilance in our part to follow Christ's example, and it will require every bit of power on God's part in order for us to follow Christ's example. One side of the coin will not eliminate the, the other side. And, and Paul happens to know that it will take more than an example on the outside. We're going to need power on the inside. We've studied the example of Christ. We agree with it. We are amazed and moved by it. But now... How do we go about practicing it? Verse 12 begins to provide that answer. If, yeah, there, therefore, and this opening in the Greek language, hoste, is actually used to draw a conclusion or application from the preceding verses. In other words, the example of Christ's humility and power are given to us in verses 5 to 11 which are now going to be Paul's primary application. And notice how tenderly Paul adds the term, my beloved. Paul isn't saying, hey, you, yes. I'm talking to you people in Philippi who need to grow up and work it out. No, he says, my beloved. Paul models a kind shepherd who understands the disappointments of the Philippian believers. He knows the conflicts they're, they're facing. 
He knows their fears and their needs, and he fully understands an adversarial culture where the gospel is anything but appreciated. One author writes, Paul is not delivering some sort of indifferent, uncaring directive. He is affectionately calling them to follow Christ's example of humility and obedience. As we read these two verses of Paul's opening application, it seems that Paul is insightfully pulling out the challenges we face growing up in Christ. He's actually drawing out, in a very kind manner, the truth about our tendency. And we all have certain tendencies that get in the way of, of humility and obedience. So as we go through this text, the points made here will put into words what Paul is kindly and affectionately yet carefully pointing out. And what Paul points out effectively provides solutions to our sanctification process as we grow in humility and obedience. First, Paul is implying the truth that we have a tendency to stray. Look at verse 12 again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Can you hear what is graciously being suggested there? You have obeyed my authority when I was with you. Now be very careful and even more diligently to be obedient while I'm away. Like an experienced mother or father, it's one thing for children to obey when you're around. It's an entirely different challenge when they aren't around. It's one thing for a child to share his toys and behave when mom is standing at arm's length. And even at that, it's not a perfect score. It's another thing to behave when mommy leaves the room. Paul implies here to these believers in Philippi, grown-ups have the same problem. What do you do when nobody's watching? And I'll be honest here for, for a second. I may or may not go over the speed limit sometimes. And I tell you what, when I come up to a curve or a hill, I pray to the Lord Almighty, please God, don't let there be a cop there. And if there is, give me discernment to slow down in time before he sees that I'm speeding. I read, I read an article when one state trooper was sitting on the side of the interstate aiming his, his radar gun. He was resting on his arm. While he just said there, cars everywhere slowed down. He admitted to a reporter that it wasn't a radar gun after all. It was his wife's hair blower. He'd forgotten his radar gun and just wanted to slow traffic down, so he brought the hair dryer from home. That's just wrong, man. That's just wrong. But... It's a good thing. It happens to be what one author called the, press, the pressure of presence. And that's a good thing. The pressures of authorial presence have a way of keeping us in line. Or reminding us when we haven't. Like one author who retold an incident one morning as she was hurrying their 11-year-old daughter to school. She writes, I stopped at a red light at an intersection and then turned right on red where it was prohibited. Uh-oh, I said out loud, realizing my mistake. I just made an illegal turn. My daughter looked behind us and then up at me and said, Oh, it's all right. The police car behind us just did the same thing. 
a reminder was well on its way. So Paul effectively says to the Philippians, you've been obedient in my presence, but now I want you to obey even more so when the pressure of my presence isn't there in Philippi. In other words, Paul says, you've always been careful to listen to the truth. Make sure you obey it, even if I'm not there telling you all over again. He's not patronizing them. He's just pointing out something that happens to be the truth. And unlike little children and misbehaving motorists, we evidence spiritual growth by how we behave when no one's looking. Or to put it even more crudely, we better behave even when we know we can get away with misbehaving. A growing reputation is based on how you act when other people are watching. Growing in sanctification is how you act when people are not watching. As we mature in our sanctification, the pressure of presence moves from an external authority like a parent or a policeman to an internal authority who happens to be the Spirit of God. In a very real sense, growing in our sanctification means we are coming to understand and submit to the pressure and presence of God. He's watching, and that's a good thing. Because we have a tendency to stray. Secondly, we have a tendency to stall. And let's uh, look at verse, uh, look at verse, look at verse 12 again. But much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And by the way, let's make sure we understand that Paul is writing to Christians. He isn't defining how you get salvation. He is referring to how you demonstrate salvation. And did you notice that Paul does not say here, work for your salvation or work up your salvation or work toward your salvation? No, he writes, work out your salvation. Live it out. Paul is effectively saying growing as a Christian is going to require a daily workout. And are you willing? His willingness is already at work within you so that whenever you prepare to engage, His power is prepared to enable. Paul specifically, specifically tells the growing believer to work out their salvation. And keep in mind what we talked about last week, that throughout the New Testament, salvation comes in three senses. Three tenses. Past salvation, our redemption and inclusion into the family of God by Christ, by faith in Christ alone, that is done and forever settled and secure. There's a future salvation when John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. 1 John 3, 2. Now, the time between our past salvation and our new birth And our future salvation, our glorified glorified eternal state, is this present salvation. And we call this present salvation sanctification. This is the process of spiritual growth Paul is referring to in Philippians 2.12. This present salvation is saving us from the power of sin, one temptation at a time where we have the ability to say no. And that's an ongoing process with ups and downs. Forwards and backwards, mountaintops and valleys, home runs and strikeouts along the way. 
This present salvation is the process of sanctification where the believer is being challenged to demonstrate his growth in Christ. Having been redeemed in the past and on his way to being glorified in the future. And and Paul compels them to work so much more. In other words, don't slow down. Don't stop. Now, the reason Paul is encouraging these believers from stalling is the use of this verb to work. The verb Paul uses in the Greek literally means to work on to the finish. It has the idea of making progress toward completing the goal. And what is the goal Paul would have in mind here? Within the application of this context, Paul is is exerting them to demonstrate the humility of Christ and obedience to the will of God the Father. And don't stop. He he he, He urges them forward. Don't stop halfway. Finish. The goal is the attitude of humility in Christ. And the finish line is the completion of his work in us when we are glorified in Christ through, the, through death or the end times. Again, Paul is a gracious encourager. He knows that finishing something is a, is a whole lot hard, harder than starting something. A lot of us decide to read through the Bible in a year, which is why the book of Genesis is probably the most read in the entire Bible. It's getting to the book of Revelation that's the hard part. I have been reading my, my one-year Bible plan for three years. Slow wins the race. That's important to remember, especially if you're slow. Others enter a graduate program where nearly 50% never graduate. Finishing is difficult. People can start violin classes at the age of eight. Not very many people are still playing at the age of 38. If you want to explore an illustration of this tendency, the biography of Nehemiah, the Jewish leader who built the walls of Jerusalem that had been entirely destroyed for generations, provides an excellent example. You will discover in reading his memoirs that the greatest threats from his enemies, along with the most discouraging moments in his service, occur when the walls of Jerusalem were halfway built. Halfway. Perhaps like no other time in the completion of any project, the temptation to quit is never stronger than than when you work so hard but still have so much left to finish. There's no more likely time to throw in the towel. Or Or to simply stall than after you've accomplished something for the Lord or you've taken steps of faith or you weather one storm and you see yet another storm is approaching. Perhaps this is why Paul used this verb to work out as a present tense. Paul is literally commanding us to continually keep at it. Keep on working. All the way to the finish line in our walk with Christ. By the way, this verb was used in Paul's day for someone working in a mine. Deep below ground in order to reach all the precious gems. It was also used for working in a field. In order to win the greatest harvest possible. An idle farmer who stalls after planting and wants little to do with weeding and fertilizing and guarding his crops should never expect much of of the harvest. A miner who shrugs off the work in the dim light of those cramped conditions in that thankless cave 
will never expect to find gold or, sil- or silver or diamond. So don't give up as you work through the redundancy of planting and weeding. Don't stop digging, no matter how cramped conditions are on a, in a thankless case. Eugene Peterson calls this the long obedience in the same direction. Staying at it when the path of obedience becomes steep and difficult or even dangerous. Pleasure seekers look for an easier way. They are religious tourists that are hunting for entertainment, instantaneous enlightenment, emotional excitement that will jump on the newest rides and take the quickest shortcuts. But they will not be found with those believers on the long, hard road following in the the footsteps of Jesus Christ, who, as Paul applies here, was obedient to death. So, death to self, obeying Christ over the long haul, waiting on the final resolution of all things in the glorious kingdom of God with humility and obedience, waiting and still working on toward the goal of His glory, Is that what growing in our sanctification means? Yes. And this is the funny thing. As soon as we take a step or two in that direction, the enemy in our flesh hears the enemy from, from hell whisper in our ear, aren't you something? I mean, how rare are you in the body of Christ? There aren't a lot of Christians nearly as dedicated as you. They do not compare to you. And you get it. You see the big picture. Man, aren't you special? With that tendency in mind, Paul moves on to remind us that we not only have a tendency to stray, we not only have a tendency to stall, but we have a tendency to become arrogant. We tend to showboat and swagger, especially when we're advancing or accomplishing something good. So Paul adds here a perspective that will help us from getting too caught up in our progress in in sanctification. Verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He didn't write with work out your salvation with with gloating and self-congratulation, but with fear and trembling. This is Old Testament terminology that references God as our audience. He is the one watching. Fear and trembling is another way of saying to be in awe of and in deep respect for the glory and holy perfection of God. The word fear here is phobos, which means terror. And the word for trembling is the word tromos, which is where we get our word tremor. Isaiah used this for the humble person who trembles at God's word. Isaiah 66.2 To fear and tremble carries the idea of reverential fear and a holy concern to treat God with the honor he deserves. One Greek scholar centuries ago wrote that this phrase to fear and to tremble means that you have a trembling anxiousness to do what is right. You simply want to get it right. 
and because of the greatness and holiness and majesty of God, you want to depend on Him for all the right, in just the right way. The other day, I had to change a, a light bulb at work. I'm not very good at fixing things, um, but I've got to continually do things to show the boss man why I'm, a, I'm essential, you know? So I changed the light bulbs. The problem is, Sometimes the light bulb sticks in the socket and it doesn't want to come out. And as I'm turning it, the glass bulb separates from the base of the light bulb. And now I've got a real problem in my hands, man. I've learned by experience that I can't touch the base of the light bulb unless the power is off. Don't do it. Don't do it. So I've come to understand that it's a good thing to have a healthy respect for electricity. I don't know about you, but I have a sense and fear and tremble in anxiousness to get it right. I hate getting elect- electrocuted. No, I also happen to appreciate electricity has revolutionized the way we live, and, and I happen to be incredibly grateful for it. But I don't ever want to approach it in the wrong way, or treat it casually, or handle it without a sense of carefulness and respect. It has more invisible power than I can imagine. Paul effectively writes here, work out your salvation with that same kind of awe and respect and humility before God, who is our audience. He has revolutionized the way you live. You greatly appreciate Him, but you never want to be disrespectful in approaching Him or, or walking with Him. He's far more powerful than we can ever imagine. And so with fear and trembling, with And so with trembling anxiousness to live right, work out your salvation before Him. This kind of attitude can potentially combat any temptation to become arrogant. Work out your salvation with humble, respect, and awe. None of us should be arrogant in the presence of glory of God. But since we do have that tendency, Paul delivers the reminder. So we have a tendency to stray, we have a tendency to stall, we have a tendency to become arrogant. And fourthly, we have a tendency to steal. In other words, we have a tendency to take the credit, to craft idols out of our accomplishments. Paul reminds us here that the credit and glory must never be stolen or claimed by any of us. Why? Verse 13, For it is God... Who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Pride, which is nothing more than stealing credit from God, was already nibbling away at the church in Philippi. Paul is attempting to cut it away by showing the example and humility in and through the life and death of Christ. And Paul reminds them here, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. Here's the paradox. We are commanded to work outwardly, but now we're told to work, but now we're told that we work outwardly as a result of God working inwardly. Which, in the context of humility, is Paul's way of reminding us that God alone deserves the credit because ultimately He was at work in us. Both to will and to do. I mean, how, how humbling is that? 
How did you accomplish that? The right answer is God did it through me. How did you come up with that idea? God impressed it in my heart. Where did you get that wonderful desire from? God gave it to me. Some people will say, I mean, come on, isn't just that religious cliche? Isn't that just Sunday morning vocabulary? I mean, do you really believe that? Paul would say, oh yes, I do. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 2.20 For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Colossians 1.29 I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 Can we say that with Paul? It happens to be some of the most telling evidence of our growth in sanctification. Anything good that I desire was a desire that He put in me. Anything good that I did was something He did through me. Ultimately, it is God who is at work. And this is another need I found about this word work. The word work is using a different, is, is a different word than what Paul told us earlier in verse 12, to work out our salvation. Here, in this phrase, it is, in, here in this phrase, it is God who is at work in me. The word changes in Greek to energo, which gives us our word for energy. Which again, creates this wonderful paradox. God, the infinite worker, empowers you to do his work. And as one author put it, where our work is empowered by his work, when our work is empowered by his work, our work becomes an expression of his work. If I can uh, invite the worship team back up, please. And here, here, here lays the tension. God isn't going, to, isn't going to make you open up your Bible. He isn't going to kick you out of bed into a discipleship group. He isn't going to fill out the form and drive you to a meeting for youth leaders or to worship practice or to volunteer in the nursery. He isn't going to make you save money for a trip overseas. He isn't going to make you testify of His grace to your neighbor. His work in us and for us does not eliminate our responsibility for Him. And yet, when we do work, it is, through, it is through His energizing strength to do what is right. Which doesn't make obedience easy, but it does make it possible. And when we desire to act, we understand that it was first and foremost His desire. And when we accomplish it, it is for His good pleasure and for His glory. And as a result, we still none of that for ourselves. But humbly thank Him for the privilege of laboring for Him and with Him and by means of Him. And so this is the truth about our tendencies. We have a tendency to stray, to stay alert. 
Paul isn't here to whisper in your ear. Your close friends in the Lord aren't seated with you in front of the television or in front of the computer. When you are in pressure by the presence of an authority, how will you act? Stay alert to that, stay alert to that greater danger. We have a tendency to stall, so stay the course. In fact, put on more coal and add more steam. Don't slow down. Don't throw in the towel. Walk through the halfway challenges of redundancy and weariness. Keep up the daily workout for your salvation. We have a tendency to become arrogant, so stay fearfully respectful in His presence and aware of His unimaginable power and greatness. We have a tendency to steal, so, so stay grateful that He has chosen to work in you and through you for His good pleasure. And the energy comes from Him, and glory belongs to Him alone. And I've said, I've said this before, um, but we, we all experience life, I mean, pretty much the same. Social, social unrest that's going on. Believer, unbelievers are going through it. Coronavirus, believers, unbelievers are going through it. Uh, you know, you go bankrupt, you lose your, your, your house, you lose your work. You have a death in the family. Believers and unbelievers go through all those things. Sickness. But what sets us, set us apart is, is, is our response. And that's what this broken world and everyone around can use as tangible evidence so that we can demonstrate who we represent and who we live for. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us the opportunity to be here uh, this morning. Lord, I uh, pray for the ones who are fearful for the times that are going on. Lord, I pray that we can be a light uh, in this dark and confusing world. Thank you for the help that you have provided for us, Lord. And I pray that we may remain diligent. Uh, Lord, I pray for the Holy Spirit to um, not condemn us, but convict us in the right ways so that we can continue to grow, uh, to become more like you. I know we, we're not thankful, but we are thankful, Lord, for the struggles. Because they are, those are meant to stick out all the impurities in our lives so that we can become more refined on the other side. Thank you for all you do. In your name we pray. Amen.